I'm going to tell you something. My life is changing and it's not great. Somewhere I live, the freedom of speech. Well, the next one. It still looks like a war zone here. It looks like ground zero. Well, the next round hit my husband, hit my soldier. Does he have a crush on me? No. Figures. I just believe I'll die for my cause. Hearing is seeing. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary. I didn't have a big college dream. I, I was kind of, I was kind of tired of all the homework. Many low-income people never learn in school what they need to get a job with a future. Because you don't want to be like me, working retail jobs, making a little money. There's a new movement to lift low-income workers into better jobs by merging the classroom and the workplace. You're constantly thinking when you're on the job. They, they, they make you think. You have to use your noodle, like, seriously. I'm Stephen Smith. In the coming hour, Workplace You, as in university. A documentary report from American Radio Works. First, this news. Did you sign any? Okay. On Wednesdays, 11th grader Carlin Harris goes corporate. Hello. How you doing? Good. Can you sign in for me? Instead of hauling his backpack to a classroom, Carlin settles in behind the front desk of the Innovation Depot in Birmingham, Alabama. Innovation Depot is a business incubator for starting companies. And what I usually do here, I usually help at the front desk, but I also get a chance to like experience how a company is made, like from the ground up and how these people come in with brilliant ideas that don't know how to use it. So we come in and we kind of help them. So that's what I do. There's a public meeting today at the Innovation Depot with state senators and TV news cameras. She's doing me an interview. Oh, okay. I was like, why is that? Yeah, no quotes. Yeah. And there are also a lot of handouts to deal with, so Carlin has to scurry to keep things running smoothly. Um, I'm going to have to go back to the copier and scan this before all this mayhem starts. This is not an after-school job. Working at the Innovation Depot is actually part of Carlin Harris's high school curriculum. He spends one full school day each week here. This is Carlin's third year at the company. You're constantly thinking when you're on the job. They, they, they make you think. You have to use your noodle, like, seriously. Using his noodle on the job is supposed to help Carlin Harris do better in high school, help him thrive in college, and then have an edge on the competition when he hits the work world. The idea is to help students from poor and blue-collar backgrounds work and learn their way to a better life. It's part of a national movement in American education to bring the workplace and the classroom closer together. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary, Workplace U. That's U as in university. I'm Stephen Smith. Now, we all know that a good education can be the ticket to a good job, but for many Americans, conventional school just isn't working. On any given day in the U.S., 7,000 high school students drop out. And even if they graduate, often what they've learned in the schoolhouse has not prepared them well enough for the job site. That is especially true for kids living in poor neighborhoods, where dropout rates are high and school quality is often low. The high school that Carlin Harris attends is Holy Family Cristo Rey. It's a private Catholic school in a struggling Birmingham neighborhood. The dropout rate is more than 50% at other schools in this part of town. And if you are a young African-American male, your chances of going to jail are a lot higher than going to college. Good morning. Good morning. Your name? Brianna Gregory. In mid-July, ninth graders start filing into the gym at Holy Family. School doesn't start for another month, but they're here for freshman orientation and job training. I am Jan Fuller. I'm the director of the corporate internship program. Jan Fuller's the one who assigns the students their work-study jobs in the business world. You see the shoes he's wearing? Look down. Orientation is when a lot of the incoming ninth graders learn about the dress code. Those are not acceptable, okay? So when you get home tonight, you explain to your mom you need dress shoes. It's a financial struggle for some families, but the dress code is firm. Neckties and slacks for the boys, blouses and sweaters for the girls, no jeans, nothing baggy or provocative. Not at school, not on the job. Good morning. How are you, Ryan? Have we done a handshake this morning? Okay. The handshake. Not a fist bump or a high five. A handshake the business way. Firm grip. Look the other person in the eye. Don't mumble your good morning. Good morning, Casey. How are you? Good. Good. 
Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Nikki Ming. I work for Regents Financial Human Resources Department as a recruiting coordinator. In orientation, the ninth graders meet with future employers and get basic job training, stuff like spreadsheets and word processing and document filing. The goal is that on the first day of work, each student will act like a worker, not like a teenager. So when a youngster walks in the building and they actually shake their hand, they assert themselves, and they ask, what do you want me to do? That's Father Alex Steinmiller, the president of Holy Family Cristo Rey. Which means Christ the King. Uh, Cristo Rey is the brand name for uh, the, the Cristo Rey program. There are 24 of these schools across the country, and they use the same approach to help kids from mostly poor urban neighborhoods prepare for college. Once a week, we bus them at 8 o'clock in the morning to a corporation, banks, law firms, architecture, hospitals, and they work a full day. Holy Family students don't have to be Catholic, but they do have to take a Catholic theology course every day. And every class opens with a prayer. In biology, it's Avis Moore's turn to lead. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, God will be done. Avis Moore is a ninth grader. He doesn't have a corporate work-study assignment yet, so he's just helping out around the school. The recession is making it harder for Holy Family to find job placements. But Avis is hoping to get an internship soon. You can work one day, the rest of the four days go to school, but out of that one work day, you go to a company that can pay you, that goes towards your intuition. In the Cristo Rey system, a student's work-study salary pays about two-thirds of the tuition. The rest comes from the school's financial aid program and a sliding scale fee paid by the family. Avis's mom is paying $95 a month. And even though Avis just started high school and hasn't even gotten that white-collar job yet, he's got plans for life after college. Uh, I'm trying to start in business, you know, lawyer, office work, stuff like that. And um, if that doesn't work out, I'm going to fashion. Today, Avis is wearing a gray patterned vest over a crisp white shirt and a black and gray tie. What I don't like about this school is the dress code. So I know we have to be business-like and stuff like that, but, you know, sometimes on regular days, some people want to wear casual clothes. That's how that story goes. Get your arms up, Justin. Stay low, stay low. There are Cristo Rey schools in 17 states and the District of Columbia, with almost 6,000 students enrolled. Again, Father Alex Steinmiller. The original school, which was called Cristo Rey in uh, Southside Chicago, in what's called um, Little Mexico, now has over 600 students with a waiting list. The program in Birmingham started just a few years ago. There are 159 students. All of them are black. Holy Family's marketing program targets some of the poorest neighborhoods in the city. We have flyers in every beauty salon, every market within a five-mile radius, and just leafleting, you know, door-to-door. And the grandma will find the grandchild, or the uncle will find the, the nephew somewhere. In other words, those flyers get distributed. Most of the students' families live near or below the poverty line. Father Steinmiller says the one day a week each student spends on the job makes school seem more relevant. It shows them a way to climb up out of poverty. It's patience. It's long-suffering, any word you want to use. That's the value that the cycle of poverty chews up, the value of um, maintaining a, a goal and maintaining a dream. So Cristo Rey is a model whereby a youngster, a 14-year-old youngster, will come to our school, will get a college prep education if they apply themselves, which means doing homework and being attentive, you know, seven hours a day in class, and if they're willing to work for their tuition. What's the equation for cellular respiration? Oh, wow. It's just the opposite now, remember. It's CO2 first. Nope. It's O2 Most of the parents at Holy Family are not college graduates. Some never finished high school. A typical family for us is a single parent home or grandparents raising their grandchildren. And their, their income level must be less than $40,000 a year. Jan Fuller says that for some kids, the school is a refuge. Some of the students here that come from such destitute homes, you don't know it because they come here with a smile, because they're happy to be here, they're happy to be away from home. They see that college is about to happen and I can get away from home. Some of them see it, some of them don't. Avis Moore lives with his mom, Vanessa. 
an older brother, and their dog, Cootie. They rent a one-story house in a low-income neighborhood of Birmingham. But most of the time when I come home, I'm fussing. Vanessa's 41 years old, and she's tired a lot of the time. Why does my house smell like it's smelling? It don't smell like nothing. That's just it. It don't smell like nothing. Did you take the garbage out? Um, yeah, you? Yes, I take the garbage out. Did anybody mop my floors in here? No, I just got in. Vanessa works two jobs. She runs the cash register at two different discount stores. What I do is I get up in the morning, I fuss, go to work, come home, fuss, go to bed. Vanessa is raising the boys on her own. Their dad isn't around. Vanessa was grateful when Avis passed the entrance tests for Holy Family, but she's struggling to pay the monthly tuition. In fact, she's behind on her payments. Avis may have to go back to public school, but Vanessa hopes that won't happen. I dropped out of high school in 11th grade. I didn't really have that parental push, you know what I'm saying? You, like, I pushed them. I didn't have that. That's come I'm so hard on them by education. It's very important to get it because you don't want to be like me, working retail jobs, making a little money for, you know. I want you to do better than what I do. In the 21st century economy, how far you go in school is a huge factor in how much money you make as an adult. And there was a time in Birmingham when a person could live relatively well on just a high school education. To find out more about the neighborhood's past, I arranged to meet a man named William Kindle in the neighborhood business district just down the road from Holy Family. Kindle runs Holy Family's elementary school. He's 57 years old, and he's a lifelong resident of the neighborhood. A lot of the storefronts around us were empty, but when William Kindle was a boy, this place was hopping. We had uh, Catfish Cabin, which was a restaurant at that period of time. We had Inslee Apothecary, Gilmer Drugs. We had law offices. Uh, you had places where you could go and develop pictures. It was a hodgepodge of where business took place here uh, for the whole, this whole area. For much of the 20th century, Birmingham, Alabama was a steel town. The region was rich in coal and iron ore. Uh, this was the Pittsburgh of the South. Uh, it, it meant income for people who normally did not have to go past the 8th grade or the 12th grade in, in school. So there were no special requirements at that time for working in the steel mill, just being ready, healthy, and able to carry out the work. That molten steel was a sign that we were thriving. It was a sign that we were living. And it was a sign that we had three meals a day. We were living in decent homes and decent housing. And when steel, when the steel industry in the U.S. collapsed in the, in the 60s and 70s and steel collapsed here in the Birmingham area, what did it mean especially to African Americans? Loss of jobs. The only jobs that would begin to open up were the ones where people who are academically or educationally prepared uh, or techno-savvy. Uh, those are the only jobs that were open. There is no way around it. This nation has moved from a muscle economy to a knowledge economy. So educational preparation and techno-savvy means college. The Cristo Rey approach is part of a larger campaign in American education to reverse the so-called achievement gap between high school students from poor families and those who are more affluent. Often that gap is defined by the color line. Because African-American and Latino students are more likely than whites to be poor, they are more likely to fall behind. Our last year's freshman class, 40% of our freshmen, 40%, were at least one, if not two, grade levels behind. Again, here's Father Alex Steinmiller, the head of Holy Family Cristo Rey in Birmingham. So, thanks to our faculty, which is exactly 10 full-time faculty, spending two or three nights a week, two hours a night, with these 40% brought most of them up to grade level by the end of the year. And because of that, they've been invited back. More than a third of students who start at a Cristo Rey school don't finish there for a lot of reasons. Some move away, some just can't make it, some families run out of money. Of those who do graduate, Cristo Rey boasts a college acceptance rate of 99%. To get to the finish line at Cristo Rey, a young person has to learn not only how to succeed in a challenging college prep school, but how to take the future seriously. I do need your homework assignments, please. Problems one through eight, and I want those problems worked out. Pamela Cowan's ninth grade math class seems especially squirrely today. Lila, where my pipe at? Where's my homework? Back at a corner table is Caitlin LaShore, cutting up with her friends, paying no attention to the math problems up on the board. 
Rodriguez. Give me one of them CDs. Rodriguez. Mrs. Cowan fixes Caitlin and her friends with a fierce eye. She is fed up. This is your beginning. Algebra 1, high school, ninth grade. The students hunker down for a talking to. A beginning for you. Some of you might be architects, drafters. It's going to take mathematics. Algebra 1. And that's pretty much how it goes until the bell rings. Then Caitlin heads to her last class of the day, biology. She drifts around that classroom, too, chatting with friends and putting on makeup. She seems bored and distracted in both classes. But when I talk to her later, she says they're actually two of her favorites. I want to go to school and get my science and my mathematics degree. And I want to be a, not an anesthesiologist, but um, I want to be a medical examiner. And then I'm going to be a forensic scientist. So I love biology and science. You want to work with dead, dead people? Yeah. And how did you decide on that? That's the popular TV show called Crime Scene Investigation. And I've always been fascinated about, like, science, like, anything. That's why I'm so good at math and science. Those are my two best subjects. I'm out when the teacher's talking, I'm like, yeah, and like, yeah. You're totally connected. Totally. Caitlin is one of the ninth graders who doesn't have a corporate job yet, so she's working one day a week at a Catholic elementary school across town. Okay, boys and girls. Okay, Jalen. Okay, no more high fives. Okay. Caitlin is a teacher's aide. She helps grade papers, takes kids to the bathroom, wakes them up from their naps. But she has been reprimanded for talking on her cell phone and for listening to her music player on the job. The um, Crystal Ray students can't have cells or iPods in their own building. And this is a workplace for them, so they're not to really have them on the workplace. That's Velda Gilliatt. She's the elementary school principal and Caitlin's boss. Today, Caitlin found a new way to get in trouble. So Gilliatt calls up Jan Fuller, the internship director over at Cristo Rey. When the children are napping, she decided to go to sleep today. Yes, that would be, that would be suggested. She needs to be changed. Thank you. Bye-bye. For sleeping on the job, Caitlin just got fired. Jan Fuller says the people at Cristo Rey expect this kind of problem, especially from a ninth grader. Most of these 14-year-olds, including Caitlin LaShore, have never had a real job before. So Caitlin will do more job skills training at the school and then try again. Sometimes it takes a little extra mothering extra push, extra shove, other kick in the butt to get them out. But it works. Have you had kids who simply didn't, couldn't do it, couldn't make it in the office environment? Now we have had those who have come here and they've been placed on the job site and we've realized that there was something else wrong, that the parents hid from us. And the majority of times that's what it is. They've got some type of condition, maybe ADH, may have autism, and they have hid it from us, and the students were very programmed, so they were able to interview with us very well and get by. And when it came down to the actual workforce, they were not able to stay with us. And in that instance, we don't put the student out. We let them stay with us for the duration of the year. When the school year is over, these students may not get invited back. If they can't keep a job, they can't go to Cristo Rey. Karen's, um, you know, Karen said she was going to be up in a few minutes. Back at the Innovation Depot, 11th grader Carlin Harris remembers when, as he says it, he was just a silly young freshman. Because I can still remember, like, the first day I came here, like, the big glass doors and walking inside and being intimidated. Carlin searches for the right words to explain how the corporate experience has helped him grow as a student and as a young man. You know, you mold yourself because now I'm able to speak to people. I'm able to pronunciate and just speak out in class more. I'm very, you know, I can tell, I can sense it. A lot of people do sense it, that when you do get into the program, that you become more eligible, you become more profound. You, you, they make you become more than what you really are. Harlan Harris is set to finish high school in spring 2011. His class will be the first to graduate from the Cristo Rey program at Holy Family in Birmingham. Carlin's sights are set on college, medical school, then becoming a surgeon. 
Harlan's boss, Jerry O'Toole, is sure that this young man will make it. Everyone that comes in this building that has any kind of interaction with Carlin comes to me and they say, that is the most on-the-spot young man we've met in a long time. What else can I say? <laughs> what, what do I tell you all the time? Um, I always tell him he's going to go far. Yeah, always. Always. You're going to go far. You're going to go far. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Workplace You, an American Radio Works documentary from American Public Media. I'm Stephen Smith. This program is about an informal movement in the United States to bring school and the workplace closer together. In a minute, we're going to go to the Pacific Northwest to hear the story of a young woman there who's getting her professional education on the job. But first, to help us understand the context of this issue, I'm joined by our economics editor, Chris Farrell. Hi, Chris. Stephen. Chris, it seems like American educators are always coming up with new models for teaching children. What makes programs like Cristo Rey so significant? If you look at the high school dropout rate in many inner city schools, it's clear that the current approach isn't working. So by putting the workplace into the high school in some form or fashion, it tells the students why you're getting an education, why you're sitting in that classroom. Schools are always adapting to changing times. Uh, What has changed about the way most people get ready for the workforce? Well, it used to be there were apprenticeship programs and vocational schools, and they'd get you ready for the world of shop, the blue-collar factory job. But think about what Crystal Ray is doing. The teachers are saying, when you're an architect, when you're an engineer, when you're a doctor, and they're putting the students in white-collar offices. And this workplace education concept is not limited just to high schools. Absolutely not. It's not just about giving high school students a good start, but how do you help people that are in dead-end jobs climb a career ladder? And here's the problem, Stephen. Most job training programs take place in the classroom. And if you didn't do well in the classroom when you were a youngster, why are you going to thrive in that environment when you're an adult? So what the workplace you concept does is it says, here's your opportunity, and here's why you're learning it. You're at work. And then you go to the classroom to learn how to advance yourself, but you know why you're doing it. Chris, the 21st century economy is often called the knowledge economy. Where are the jobs going to be for these adults with less education? There are going to be plenty of jobs in the growing sectors of our economy, such as education and healthcare. The real issue is the opportunity gap. Here are these workers without the skills to take these jobs. And if they can gain the skills, the jobs will be there. Thanks very much. That's Chris Farrell, our economics analyst and a contributing editor to Business Week magazine. In suburban Seattle, Washington, Candace Picasso is trying to bridge her own personal opportunity gap. Candace works part-time at a big hospital where she's a housekeeper. I like to have things very organized and I'm just really kind of a kind of a neat freak. Seems like a neat freak is just the person you'd want for a housekeeper. Candace starts her morning in the hospital's laundry room. She sets up the cleaning cart so everything's in order. Cleaning fluids arranged, rags folded and stacked. We use bath blankets that we that we cut up and they're very absorbent and they clean well. Then I think like something as simple as this can actually really affect your day at work. Candace spends the next six hours at the hospital dusting, wiping, emptying trash. Housekeeping. Her long brown hair is gathered in a bun with curly tendrils spilling everywhere. We are in the birth center and I am going to touch up on the offices of the um, doctors and I need some gloves. Candace Picasso comes from a working class background. Her mom and stepfather have factory jobs. Her husband works in his family's Mexican restaurant. Candace was a good student in high school. She's actually one of the few in her family to graduate, but she was not very interested in college. I didn't have a big college dream. I, I was kind of I was kind of tired of all the homework that I had, and I was thinking, okay, I'm going to take a break. I started working, and I met my husband, and we had our baby, and and then my husband was goading me to to get into a hospital. Or he's like, I'd love for, to see you as a nurse. <laughs> I'm like, well, I guess we can try and get my foot in the door, you know, at least. <laughs> Working as a housekeeper is okay, but it's only part-time. And in hospitals, the better jobs involve taking care of patients. Those jobs require technical and medical skills you can't learn by working on a hospital cleaning crew. You get them at community college. 
but Candace can't afford the tuition. So it would seem that she is stuck in a dead-end job. In this country, we're used to thinking that everybody has a chance to make it. But we aren't always used to thinking that everybody deserves a second chance to make it as well. Laura Chenven is an official with the Healthcare Career Advancement Program. It's a national organization that helps hospital workers get promoted. I think a lot of us, when we get to work, we, we kind of grow up there. We begin to see what we do and don't want to do. You know, what do I want to be when I grow up? Don't we ask ourselves those questions all throughout our life? People need a chance to go back to school and to get that second chance. For Candace, the second chance came in a notice stapled to her paycheck. The state of Washington offers a free program she can use to prepare for an entry-level position in patient care. Candace is studying to be a personal care assistant. She takes classes and gets her training at the hospital. We go get vitals for patients and then pass ice water, um help them wash up for breakfast, order breakfast, and feed those who can't eat themselves, you know? You're already good. I'm ready. All right, let's go. You have everything? What? Yeah. You're not forgetting anything, right? Nothing. Oh, good. <laughs> Candace wheels an elderly man who's just been discharged to the hospital door. She's clearly grateful to be working directly with patients. It feels like it can kind of help them help them heal because we're like the first line of contact that they have when they get in here. We're the ones who are closest to them and taking care of them. Hospitals in Washington state have learned that it's better to promote from within because at least a third of the recruits who come fresh from nursing school end up quitting in the first two years. Existing staffers like Candace Picasso are a better bet because they are used to the intensity of hospital work. Jaime Garcia of the Washington State Hospital Association says the nursing workforce is also growing older just as hospitals are bracing for a surge in business. You have the first wave of the baby boomers beginning to retire. Well, as a boomer generation ages, people over 65 use three times the amount of health care. That's why you still see towers being built at hospitals in spite of the recession because they have to get ready for the wave of people coming out. So healthcare is a growth industry for working-class people, even if they don't have a four-year bachelor's degree. Experts say the key for these workers is getting a community college certificate or other kind of professional credential after finishing high school. Jaime Garcia says when hospitals help train those workers, they get a more diverse healthcare staff. Because the future workforce is going to be multilingual, it's going to be of color, it's going to be probably from lower socioeconomic background, because that's where the workers are. And Brantley Hill. At a party at the Union Hall, Candace Picasso and about 80 others are celebrating the end of their first year of healthcare training. These students are working their way up from places like the parking garage, the lunchroom, and the laundry. Candace's two-year-old daughter is dancing in the aisle. Her parents are beaming. Candace's mom, Maria Hamshaw, never finished high school, and now her daughter is a college student. We're just very excited for her that she's gone through this program and succeeded. And she's doing the right kind of, of job for her because she's so caring and loving and, and helpful and wants to help people all the time. So she's in the right field. Candace now has a personal care assistant license. Her hospital is opening a new wing this winter. She'll be on the shortlist for a full-time PCA job. If she gets it, she'll also get a hefty raise and health insurance for her whole family. Candace Picasso's long-term goal is to work and study her way up to being a fully qualified and much-in-demand professional nurse. You're listening to Workplace You, a documentary from American Radio Works. I'm Stephen Smith. Coming up, getting back on the job when you're down and out. I get up at 5 o'clock every morning. I catch three buses to get here. I leave here about 10 minutes to 12 and catch two buses to get to work. So all together in the day's time, I'm on a bus six and a half hours to go to school and go to work. Better my life. 
You can see slideshows about school life at Holy Family Cristo Rey and the healthcare training program in Seattle at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. While you're there, you can listen to this program again and subscribe to our podcast to access our entire catalog of more than 100 documentaries. That's at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Support for this program comes from the Northwest Area Foundation Fund of the Minneapolis Foundation. American Radio Works is supported by the Batten Institute, the Research Center for Global Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business, battenninstitute.org. Our program continues in just a moment from American Public Media. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary, Workplace U, U as in university. I'm Stephen Smith. We're taking a close look at a movement in this country to merge the workplace and the classroom. In a moment, we'll look at a project here in the Twin Cities that helps chronically unemployed people get back into the workforce. First, we're going to take a moment to again bring in our economics editor and analyst, Chris Farrell. Hi, Chris. Stephen. Chris, behind many of the stories we're hearing in this program is something called generational poverty, which is when a family has been poor for two generations or more. Why is this kind of poverty so persistent? Well, the odds are stacked against the kids. I mean, they grow up in bad neighborhoods or in poor rural areas. And often they have poor schools. There's lots of crime, drugs, alcohol, very few role models. And these are isolated communities with not a whole lot of knowledge about what's going on in the outside world. So it's common to hear people wonder why poor folks don't simply just move to better parts of town and get a job. Just leave that bad stuff behind. Well, many people do, but many find it impossible. Where are those jobs? And it turns out, you know, middle class folks usually assume that poor people have character flaws. It's their fault. But so many work values are learned at the home as you're growing up. And if you don't have parents that are teaching you things such as being on time, getting things done, taking initiative, well, it's tough to learn those things at school, particularly in poor neighborhoods. So what's to be done? What's to be done is to create the belief and opportunity. So you concentrate on transferring what the social scientists call these soft skills and the particular technical knowledge to help break this cycle of generational poverty. And so the argument goes that by investing in programs to get people back into the job market, there's a direct payback to the community. If they're starting to earn an income and they have a steady job, they can be taxpayers. They can also become, over time, homeowners. And perhaps most importantly... If they're taxpayers and they're homeowners and they have a steady income, that's what their children will learn. And the cycle of poverty will be broken. And instead, we'll be talking about climbing up a ladder toward the middle class. Thanks very much. That's American Public Media's economics editor and analyst, Chris Farrell. Thanks a lot, Stephen. Where my ice cream that you supposed to bought me the other day? My cookies and cream, remember? Huh? At least they wasn't. What happened to it? It's a warm July evening in the city. A few friends and their kids are sharing takeout dinner on the front porch of a shabby Minneapolis duplex. The kids are trying to coax the grown-ups into a water fight. I'm getting two today. You'll give me today? All right, I'm on. It's on. Let's do this. No, not right now. I'm I'm busy. Wait till I company leave, okay? Just a few months ago, the four kids and their mom, Samantha McNeil, lived in a homeless shelter. Then Sam got on public assistance and scraped together enough money to rent this apartment. Sam is 27, and she's been struggling with poverty for a long time. She got pregnant in high school, but she didn't drop out. My daughter was two months at the time, and I kept going. I still graduated with my class, went to prom and everything, so that was a while ago. <laughs> Big. Biggie. Oh, I thought you were talking about weed. You got two slices of pizza in the microwave. Biggie Williams is also on the porch, and he's built like his name, tall and big. Biggie is 22. He's a friend of Sam's, and he also grew up poor. All my life I've been um, in a single-parent single home. I live with my mother and my two sisters. She, she gets a job every now and then, but she was mostly on disability because she's diabetic. Now, some people who grew up poor say that as kids, they never really knew how little their families had. Not Biggie. You know, I never wanted that the life I had. You know, I always was teased because of the clothes I wore. It wasn't the best clothes. It wasn't the best shoes. So I always told myself, I'm going to strive to do better. I'm going to strive to have more. After Biggie finished high school, he had a promising factory job for a while. But drinking got in the way of working. It hit, I hit a spiral, whereas I didn't care about anything. Just sitting in the house, not looking for jobs, not trying to 
do anything about it. What? We have a water. Why you throw some water on her? And finally, Russell Brockman is also on the porch. He stays at Sam's place sometimes when he doesn't have somewhere else to go. Russell is an amiable 44-year-old guy and even bigger than Biggie. Russell is the heart of the party. We eat, play cards, dominoes, dance, drink. A lot of eating. Lots and lots of eating. Russell, Sam, and Biggie became friends at a local anti-poverty program. They're among the hardcore unemployed, people with limited skills, spotty work experience, and grim prospects for the future. All three of them want a job, but their bad work histories make it hard to find and keep one, especially in a recession. In Russell's case, a big problem is his criminal history. Many businesses won't hire felons. Russell was in a street gang called the Black Disciples back in Chicago, where he grew up. It started off stealing cars and beating people up, and then it escalated. Armed robbery, attempted murder, nothing more worse than that. But that's some pretty graphic things. Russell Brockman has spent nearly half his adult life in prison. He moved to Minneapolis a few years ago to live with his sister. Being an ex-con made it hard to find a job, so he turned again to selling drugs and stealing cars. Prior to a year ago, you, you wouldn't want to know me. I was not a nice guy. <laughs> I mean, I was a drug dealer, I was mean. Unless you was offering me drugs or sex or money, I didn't really want nothing to do with you. If I couldn't profit from a conversation with you, it wasn't nothing for us to talk about. You know, I, was just, I was just evil, you know. Then Russell vowed to get clear of trouble, to stop being evil. Now, street crime is generally a young man's game, and as Russell neared middle age, he grew weary of the relentless threat of violence. Up all nights, watching your back all day, carrying two, three guns. Worry about who's going to try to rob you. <laughs> Where about you going to see somebody that you not robbed, you know? No, I don't miss none of that. Eight months ago, Russell found his way to a place called Twin Cities Rise. It's a nonprofit organization that helps people like Russell, Sam, and Biggie find and keep a steady job. To transform and change someone's life takes time. Peggy Houston runs Twin Cities Rise. She says most students take at least a year to learn the skills they need for a decent job. We have to work at giving them a lot of confidence and helping them be sure of themselves as they go out into this world. And we do it by setting some pretty high standards here. Standards like a dress code, a rigid attendance policy, and drug testing. And we say to them, we're just like the employer out there, and you have to meet those standards. If you're successful here, you will be successful when you leave here. Rice tells its students, including Russell, Biggie, and Sam, that they'll need to master soft skills like appearance and punctuality if they want to climb out of poverty. And Rice will help them learn technical skills, too, things they missed or failed to learn in school. In Russell Brockman's case, he's discovering how to send an email attachment. What does that say? Microsoft Office Word. Okay, now go see if you can find it. Go find what? Your attachment in Word. I get the word. Go to start. Before he started at Rise, Russell had never set hands on a computer, except maybe to steal it. Now he's getting tested on the thing. Word documents and cut and pasting folders and putting it in this file and that in that file. And now the press is on because now not only can I do it, but now you got to do it in two minutes or less. There are a few hundred students in this program at Rise. They go to half-day classes four times a week. In addition to computer literacy, RISE students take writing and math and classes on personal empowerment and critical thinking. Let's see. Hey, Russell, you ready to go? Yes, sir. Okay, did you get to do your practice? Absolutely. Okay, great. Russell is preparing for the public speaking class. The teacher explains that the class is meant to help students develop the poise and confidence they'll need to get a good job. Because you don't know what that human resource person is going to ask you to think on your feet, to formulate a speech right away, that's a technique that really will help you during your job interview. In today's speech exercise, Biggie takes the podium to formally introduce Russell to the class. Growing up in Chicago, Russell's life was centered around football. His lifelong dream was to play for Dallas Cowboys football team. Okay. Today, Russell will tell you to us about two of his favorite players. Please give a warm welcome to Russell. First mess up the day was uh, I gave him the wrong one. <laughs> that was going to be my original one, but I changed it. What Russell means is he accidentally attached the wrong introduction in his email to Biggie. 
Russell's speech is not about football. <laughs> Today, I'm here to talk to you about one of my favorite games to play, and it's called dominoes. Dominoes is a game played where you do a lot of adding. And uh, we start a game off with double sixes. Russell's colleagues are not exactly riveted by the subject, but he passes speech class and can now move on to resume writing and mock interviews. There are thousands of job training programs for poor people in the United States, but a lot of them prepare their clients for the lowest end of the employment market, low-skill, low-paying jobs with no benefits and no future. Twin Cities Rise aims higher. Jobs that pay at least $20,000 a year come with opportunity for advancement and offer benefits like health insurance and a retirement plan. The program is funded by donations and foundations. And like a lot of jobs programs, Rise also gets money from state government, $9,000 per student. But here's another difference. Rise only gets that money if the student succeeds. The concept is you only pay us when we place somebody in that job and when that person is there for a year. You're not paying us for the process to get them there. You're only paying us for the outcome. And that's the way our program was started. We're about an outcome, and the outcome is a living wage job. RISE students start off with paid internships in dozens of local businesses, from big corporations like General Mills and Target to small companies and nonprofit organizations. By midsummer, Russell Brockman is ready for his internship, to make it to classes and then way across town to his job, Russell puts in a 17-hour day. I get up at 5 o'clock every morning. I catch three buses to get here. I leave here about 10 minutes to 12 and catch two buses to get to work. So all together in a day's time, I'm on a bus six and a half hours to go to school and go to work. Better my life. I'm working at a company called Bridging. They give furniture free to the less fortunate. Three boxes, one bag, two pictures. One huge but light sofa. This is a light, this is a light one, Louis. Russell is a big man, over six feet tall and at least 300 pounds. He is in constant motion at the bridging warehouse, heaving furniture onto a truck, wheeling the dolly down the aisle where the boss calls out for another load. Uh, there's a footstool in 317. Kitchen table, 309, 309. Russell's blue t-shirt is soaked with sweat and his bald head is shiny but he's almost always smiling and joking around. He's a favorite of the staff. Oh, I, I love Russell. He's worked so hard, and he's such a gentleman. I wish we had a job opening for him. I'd hire him tomorrow morning. This is Bridging's founder, Fran Heitzman. I've been in business all my life, hired people all my life, and uh, I can tell somebody who is a good worker in five minutes. I'm a pretty good judge, and... Uh, uh, that's, a, that's a good one there. Anybody gets him on his workforce, they got a gem. And for the next six weeks, Russell is a good worker. But even a gem has flaws. One day in August, Biggie Williams was on the job at Bridging. Russell was there too. He, he was in the back of the warehouse picking up some items for a pickup and saw or heard the police up front and left out the back door. And while the police was searching the warehouse, he got away. Turns out Russell robbed a bank the day before. It didn't take long for police to find and arrest him. Afterwards, Russell told me he just strode in off a of Minneapolis street and handed the teller a note demanding $1,000. Give me 10 $100 bills or get shot. And did you have a gun? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, sir. They gave you the money? Mm-hmm. You walked out of the bank. Yeah, well, I walked out, then I started running. Then I heard something go pop. I thought I'd been shot at, <laughs> you know. What the hell? <laughs> and then my pocket started smoking. Your pocket started smoking? Yeah, it was a dye pack. A dye pack yeah. was in there with the bills. Yeah, so I reached in and grabbed it out, and it burnt my hand. I threw it and kept running. And made a couple of blocks, hopped on the bus, and went home. Russell was arrested the next day. His handprint on the bank counter matched his police records. The evening after the arrest, Biggie and Sam are hanging out on the front porch, trying to make sense of what Russell has done. If he needed money or anything, he could have came to us, you know, it's all types of things that he could have did instead of that. So to find that out is, I don't know, like, kind of heartbroken because my kids love him, I love him, you know, he's like my big brother, so 
don't know. I'm just kind of stuck right now. Here is the really crazy part. Russell robbed that bank on the day that he and Biggie got their internship checks. The thing that just keeps going through my head, he had money. He had money in his hand. Why would he need to do that? For what? Well, the fact is that climbing your way out of long-term poverty can be a mighty struggle. And for people like Russell, there are always familiar old demons ready to pull you back down. August 5th, I left home early to go cash my check and go to work early. That was my plan. While I was waiting on the bus, a prostitute walked up to me. And she looked damn good. She propositioned me, and I took her proposition. So we went to the liquor store, went to somebody's house, and we had alcohol and sex and crack cocaine. And after it was all gone, I left. I was trying to go home, but decided, you know, I was still very high, and the craving just got the best of me. I said, go in that bank. And the cravings got the best of you, so you went to the bank. Yep. Had you been... Uh, had you been doing crack up until this time? Had no, I had relapsed that day. That was the day you were I had two years, 11 months. 30 days away from three years. And you were taking the paycheck that you had made at Rise. Mm-hmm. And, and that's sort of how it all happened. Yep. Do you have any inkling of this coming on? Nope. I was happy, waiting to get to work early so I could you know, get a few extra hours. Russell confessed to the robbery, and his public defender convinced the court that Russell needs treatment instead of jail while he's waiting to be sentenced. So Russell's living in a halfway house. He knows he's disappointed the staff at Twin Cities Rise, not to mention his family, his friends, and himself. I feel like an idiot, you know. Not that, you know, what hurt most is giving up all the clean time, you know. And I'm then sorry? What hurt the most was giving up the clean time, the you clean know, time, all the yeah. time I had clean and sober, you know, that, that hurt and uh, then to go do to something stupid as that. You know, I never in my life dreamed about robbing a bank, you know, so. This is the first time you've robbed a bank? Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Russell expects to get sent back to prison, but he doesn't know for how long. It depends on whether the court decides he's a career criminal. Could be just a few years, or he could get 20. And the folks at Twin Cities Rise say Russell will be welcome to come back when he gets out. After all, he was an ex-con the first time they accepted him. While Russell waits for sentencing, his friends Biggie and Sam are moving forward. Today at Rise, they're each doing a mock job interview. So, Samantha, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. For starters, I am applying for assistant in administrative work. Um, I have a lot of experience. Five years uh, entry level to intermediate mechanical engineering and fabrication. Um, More recently, I have a year's worth of warehouse experience. And have you ever been convicted of a misdemeanor or a felony? Yes, I've had two misdemeanors, which were in theft. Now, the first one was six years ago. Can you tell me about a time when you felt a customer was being unreasonable? I I deal with customers on a daily basis where I give the people the furniture that come pick up. Of the 91 people who started at Twin Cities Rise with Biggie, Sam, and Russell, 63 are still in the program eight months later. Three of them now have full-time jobs with decent pay and benefits. And they're paying taxes. Rise officials say by helping people get off government support, the program saves the state of Minnesota a million dollars a year. Biggie Williams moved up from his internship at Bridging to a regular part-time job. Biggie says giving out furniture to people in need reminds him of the days when he slept on a cold floor with no blanket. Biggie is determined not to drift back to that life. He says his drinking is under control. It's coming to the point in time in my life where I need to step up, or just, just lay down and let everything trample you. In this situation I'm in right now, I've been working on it for a couple, for a year or so now, and is looking up. Everything's starting to move in a, in a better direction. So I'm not going to stop now. Samantha McNeil just started her first internship through RISE. She's an office assistant in a Lutheran church. Sam's boss, Margie, is showing her around. Oh, and one of the other things we have to do is make sure that there's enough envelopes in the sanctuary okay. and visitors' cards. Sam says the public speaking class at RISE was especially helpful. 
She needed to get past her shyness and her insecurity about being able to do the work. And Sam says she also needed to learn that she is the only person who can make her life better. In a few years, I would love to be, well, I'm taking that back, I will be at a good job, office job that I really enjoy long term, making over $10 an hour and have my own place with me and my kids and hopefully Russell and everybody can stay next door. <laughs> so that's what I'm looking at. Americans like to think of their country as a land of opportunity. But for low-income families, getting ahead is tough. The research is clear. People born poor are likely to stay poor. And it's hard to see a way out when you grow up in a bad neighborhood, go to a weak school, don't have successful people around you. And then when you look for a job, nobody's hiring. Yet this is also a country where employers say they need more skilled workers than they can find. The campus of Workplace U may be a good place for job seekers and companies to meet. Workplace U isn't a real university, of course. It's an idea. People behind the idea say it can help reach millions of Americans that traditional education is failing. In Workplace U, low-income high school students get a wider view of the world when they work with lawyers and architects. Janitors and housekeepers get new careers because they can go to college where they work. And chronically poor people with scant work histories get a second chance by learning basic skills they missed in school and then use that knowledge at work. Workplace U inspires students to think about the future. Believing in a better future with a real job can be a first step on the ladder out of poverty towards a better life. listening to an American Radio Works documentary, Workplace U. It was produced by Laurie Stern and me, Stephen Smith, with help from Chris Farrell. It was edited by Catherine Winter. The American Radio Works team includes Ellen Gettler, Ocean Kalin, Frankie Barnhill, Craig Thorson, and Judy McAlpin. Special thanks to Suzanne Pico and Mark Sanchez. And one note of disclosure to pass along. The founder and chair of Twin Cities Rise is businessman Stephen Rothschild, he is also on the board of trustees of our parent company, American Public Media. We have photos of Twin Cities Rise and of Russell at work and at court at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. You can also find an essay there by Chris Farrell on why we are all affected by workplace education programs like those you heard about today. You can find that and more at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Support for this program comes from the Northwest Area Foundation Fund of the Minneapolis Foundation. American Radio Works is supported by the Batten Institute, the Research Center for Global Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. BattenInstitute.org. American Public Media. <laughs>